nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we honor the fifth anniversary of the March 11, 2011 earthquake and tsunami that marked the beginning of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. We'll feature an on-the-ground-in-Japan overview of the current situation faced by the people there with Beverly Fidley Kaneko, the producer behind our Voices from Japan series. We'll also take a look at the newly revived problems of incinerating Fukushima's radioactive waste with Kimberly Roberson of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. Plus, our popular Num Nuts of the Week feature, Nuclear Reactor Duck, and Cover Report, and more honest nuclear information that will be found in a Republican or Democratic primary. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday. March 1st, 2016, and here is the week's nuclear news from our perspective. Because of the Fukushima anniversary, there are so many stories out this week dealing with that hydra-headed monster. I'll skim some current and historic issues and provide you with lots of links to some of the comprehensive roundups that people have compiled. That will all be up on the website for you to check out. For now, it seems the past is catching up with the nuclear narcissists. On Monday, February 29th, three former executives of Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, were indicted for allegedly failing to take measures to prevent the tsunami-triggered crisis at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear complex. The three, including the former chairman of TEPCO at the time and two former vice presidents, will face charges of professional negligence resulting in death and injury. That's an understatement. The Committee for the Inquest of Prosecution has said the former executives received a report by June of 2009 that the Fukushima facility could be hit by a tsunami as high as 15.7 meters and that they, quote, failed to take preemptive measures knowing the risk of a major tsunami. Naoto Kan, who was the Prime Minister of Japan when the Fukushima crisis began, in a recent interview described the panic and disarray at the highest levels of the Japanese government as it fought to control multiple meltdowns at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station, and in the beginning, it took two months before they knew that meltdowns had actually taken place. Khan said that he considered evacuating Tokyo and all other areas within 250 kilometers of the facility and declaring martial law. The future existence of Japan as a whole was at stake. Something on that scale, an evacuation of 50 million people, 
It would have been like losing a war. Khan admitted he was frightened and said he got no clear information out of TEPCO, the facility's operator. He also said he was very shocked by the performance of Nobuaki Terasaka, the government's nuclear safety advisor, who it turns out knew nothing about nuclear issues. He majored in economics. And that's the way nukes operate. Money before everything else, including people and the environment. A Stanford University nuclear expert, Rodney Ewing, has offered three lessons from the disaster in a very powerful article. The first lesson is avoid characterizing the Fukushima tragedy as an accident, because this does not properly capture the cause of the event, which was a failure of the safety analysis. The second lesson is to rethink the meaning of risk, because risk is more than just the loss of life and property. Ewing said that the risk analysis can work against safety, because it can be used to dismiss a circumstance like an earthquake or tsunami as rare or unexpected, and that greatly lessens the urgency with which we ought to act and prepare. The third of Ewing's lessons is that nuclear energy is strongly linked to the future of renewables. The example he gave was Germany, as a very technologically advanced country that is going to try and do without nuclear energy while simultaneously reducing its carbon emissions. This will require a significant investment in renewable energy sources, and that will be costly. But it's a cost that many Germans seem willing to pay. It's a thought-provoking article, and we will have a link to it up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number two forty-six. The Japanese government says that more than three thousand four hundred survivors of the two thousand eleven earthquake and tsunami have subsequently died due to health problems. The reconstruction agency compiles data every six months on deaths related to the disaster and the ensuing nuclear accident in northeast Japan. Since March of 2014, 156 people have died, most of them in Fukushima Prefecture. Cause of death was not listed. This item from Fukushima Diary: Because radioactive cedar pollen spreads from Fukushima to the Tokyo area, Japan's forestry agency analyzes the pollen at 24 locations. In one sample from November of 2015. They measured eight thousand eight hundred becquerels per kilogram. Keep in mind that in Japan, the uppermost limit for radiation in food that is allowed is one hundred becquerels per kilogram, and that gives you an idea of how intensely radioactive this cedar pollen was. Additionally, the forestry agency stated that no male flower was found. They did not investigate the possible relationship between the absence of male flower. And radioactive contamination. A study that was released in October of 2015 says children living near the Fukushima nuclear meltdowns have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer at a rate 20 to 50 times that of children elsewhere. Most of the 370,000 children from Fukushima Prefecture have been given ultrasound checkups since March of 2011. And thyroid cancer is suspected or confirmed in 137 of those children, according to Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health. In a population of that size, you would expect eight cases of thyroid cancer. 
you can hear Joseph Mangano's interview on the thyroid cancer epidemic on Nuclear Hot Seat number 242. And in an earlier scientific study published in a peer-reviewed journal that was also written by Joseph Mangano, who I failed to mention before is an epidemiologist, at least 14,000 people in the United States were killed during the 14 weeks following the Fukushima catastrophe, and the majority of these deaths were in children under nine. Mangano's study looked at both infant and adult death rates during the time when Fukushima occurred, as well as in previous months and years. What he found is that during the 14 weeks prior to Fukushima, infant deaths had been declining by 8.37%, while in the weeks following the disaster, they increased by 1.8%. Among adults, A 4.46% death rate was observed in the weeks after Fukushima, compared to a 2.34%, which is about half that rate, a year prior. And now, to demonstrate exactly how well the Japanese are taking care of their people. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's on a week. Imagine that you are a single mother. And there is a village that offers you free child care, support for living expenses, and even the cost for moving in. A two-bedroom apartment will only cost you $115, or 13,000 yen. There's even a -a rent-a-car service being considered. Sounds pretty terrific, doesn't it? That's until you learn the location of this village. It is Kawauchi Village in Fukushima and is admittedly in the highly radioactive environment there. And they're offering this deal to all single mothers, not just disaster evacuees, and this is for the sake of population and economical growth in the highly radioactive environment. Yuko Endo, the mayor of Kawauchi, says... The entire village will support the single mothers and their family members, and the younger generation like them will revitalize the village. It's going to be a win-win. You stupid, heinous mangala! You are inviting the most vulnerable population that exists into a radioactive zone. You are inviting women who are more radiologically sensitive than men because of the size of their reproductive area, you are inviting them to bring their children, who are more at risk from radiation than parents because their bodies are still growing, and little girls are twice as vulnerable as little boys, and small children are more vulnerable than larger children, and fetuses are the most vulnerable of all. You are inviting this whole group, kit and caboodle, to come to an area that will slowly and inevitably kill them from the inside out. I'm waiting for the announcement of free health care, just like they gave in the Marshall Islands, which wasn't health care at all. It was just making sure they had appropriate regular readings on the human lab rats. This is evil, numbnuts. It is premeditated, long-term, slow-acting murder. And that's why you, Yuko Endo, and everyone in the village of Kawachi who is behind this plan, all of you 
in the darkest, most evil terms possible, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound awake. For further information about the current status of Fukushima, there are two excellent articles we're posting links to on the website, one by Linda Penn's Gunter and the other by Lucas Hickson of Informable.com. Over to the U.S. and North St. Louis, where the Environmental Protection Agency said that it plans to create a specific unit to study groundwater contamination at the Westlake Landfill Superfund site. And it's also going to conduct more tests to see if any radiological sediment has moved off the site during widespread flooding last year. EPA, this has been a Superfund site for over 26 years. You're just now looking into contaminated groundwater? There is an uncontrolled underground fire that's been burning for five years at the Bridgeton Landfill, and it is right next door to a great big pile of illegally buried radioactive waste at the Westlake Landfill. What is needed is put out the fire and or construct a barrier between the two. Or just give up your cash cow to the Army Corps of Engineers who know how to clean up this kind of waste. Now it's time for the nuclear duck (laughs) and cover report. Seven Nuclear Regulatory Commission engineers have formally petitioned the governing commissioners to either order the nation's nuclear power plants to immediately correct a design flaw governing their reactor cooling systems or order them all to shut down. The flaw is in the original design of the electrical system and has escaped notice for decades. On March 6th, a transformer at the Akane Nuclear Station in South Carolina caught fire and quickly rose from a Nuclear Regulatory Commission designation of unusual event to an alert, which is number two on a scale of four to kiss your ass goodbye. A scuba diver exploring near the St. Lucie Nuclear Power Plant less than 50 miles up the coast from West Palm Beach, was sucked into the reactor's underwater intake pipes. There was no grating over the mouth of the pipe, and the force of 500,000 gallons of water per second rushing into the pipes pulled him into the intake in front of his watching friend. He tumbled through the intake pipe, which was 16 feet across and nearly a quarter mile long, at a rate of nearly 7 feet per second. He was finally deposited in the intake channel at the St. Lucie Nuclear Power Plant, where he flagged down a freaked-out worker. The lawsuit is in progress. <coughs> Again to Florida, where a radioactive isotope linked to water from the Turkey Point Power Plant cooling canals has been found in high levels in Biscayne Bay, off the southernmost tip of the state. Water sampling in December and January found tritium levels up to 215 times higher than normal in ocean water. (coughs) And last December 14th, emergency shutdown of the Indian Point nuclear reactor, only 35 miles from midtown Manhattan, was caused by bird poop. The droppings from a quote-unquote large bird fell onto some of the plant's electrical equipment and tripped the auto shutdown. Well, nuclear is for the birds, and apparently the birds have made an editorial comment of their own. Duck! (laughs) 
More than 100 organizations from around the Great Lakes are calling on the Canadian and American governments to list radionuclides as a chemical of mutual concern under the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. The group's efforts are supported by a new report, which says, in part, the Great Lakes Basin is a hotbed for nuclear-related activity, with more than 30 nuclear generating stations, fuel processing facilities, waste disposal, and uranium mine tailing sites scattered around the lower four lakes. We'll have an interview on this on an upcoming nuclear hot seat. Germany may be going green, but it's attempting to empty 93% of a concrete bunker filled with nuclear waste and send it to the United States to sit outside at the Savannah River site under a tarp. Japan is shipping 331 kilograms of plutonium back to the U.S., where it will join the German waste at the Savannah River site. It's believed that this much plutonium is enough to make 50 nuclear bombs. Geneva, Switzerland, is taking legal action over the French nuclear reactor at Bigi for endangering lives and polluting water. In 2013, Greenpeace activists broke into the plant to highlight alleged security weaknesses at the facility. Why do they say alleged? And my favorite quote of the week calling nuclear power the solution to climate change makes no more sense than calling amputation the solution. For a broken arm. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a few moments, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat is listener supported and relies on your donations to help keep us going and growing. There are those pesky monthly running fees, website assistance, and travel expenses when it's important to get me to the stories that need to be covered. That's what happened two weeks ago. When I went to St. Louis to cover the Westlake Landfill Coldwater Creek Bridgeton Landfill fire story, and it resulted in nuclear hot seat number 244. Please check it out to see what on the site coverage can sound like. Nuclear hot seat has some pretty big goals for this year. So, whatever you can do to help us meet these goals, please, whatever you can donate is appreciated. You can try a Starbucks donation, which is the equivalent of what you would pay for a cup of coffee with a nice tip. It's a great way to get started. So go to nuclearhotseat.com, click on the big red donate button, and know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated. And as always, you have my gratitude. Beverly Findlay Kaneko has been an educator and journalist. She was a faculty member of the International Graduate School of Social Sciences at Yokohama National University and a writer for the Japan Times and the Chronicle of Higher Education. She used to live in Japan and now lives in Southern California. In 2012, Beverly formed the nonprofit volunteer group Families for Safe Energy, which is focused on the human and environmental costs of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Beverly has produced the Nuclear Hot Seat series Voices from Japan, and for this episode, the voice from Japan is hers. Beverly, in the immediate aftermath of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident in 2011, everyone in Japan worried that another accident would happen and they feared radiation. Now, just five years later, what is the mood in the country? The mood has changed considerably. 
In 2011 and 2012, people loudly exclaimed, no nukes, at giant demonstrations, and it seemed that the nuclear safety myth was crumbling right before our eyes. Politicians, bureaucrats, and businessmen who had up until then been fervent supporters of nuclear power could now barely speak the word nuclear. Pro-nuclear advertisements completely disappeared. Now, however, Japan does not seem to be moving in an anti-nuclear direction. Regarding the accident itself, there was the announcement by then Prime Minister Noda claiming that the plant was in cold shutdown in December 2011. Prime Minister Abe made his everything is under control statement in front of the International Olympic Committee in 2013 and there have been many reports in the mainstream media praising the reconstruction efforts in Fukushima. It's no wonder that many people in Japan think that Fukushima Daiichi is already safe. Even the Friday night demonstrations in the capital that once saw 200,000 people marching now seem like an illusion. 1,000 people is about as big as it gets these days. The focus of activism has moved to the military issue, which has seen huge demonstrations over the past year or so. Interest in the nuclear issue has faded. Therefore, there's little news value in the topic of radiation, and the media has naturally shifted its focus away from nuclear. It's a vicious circle. People lose interest, and the news stops covering it, and with less information, people become even more detached. If you visit a bookstore, this is very evident. For about two years after the accident, the shelves were stuffed with books about nuclear power and radiation. How about now? There are so few books that one has to ask bookstore staff where to find them. And there are now even books that argue that nuclear is necessary. That's how much things have changed. A friend of mine who's an evacuee from Fukushima once sadly told me, even though Japanese citizens all own this problem together and should be working hard to make sure an accident never happens again, interest has shifted elsewhere. The accident is ongoing and hasn't ended. I really don't think people will wake up and see this as their own problem unless we have another accident. This must be very fortunate for the government and the nuclear village. Yes, Libby. Things are returning to a comfortable situation where they can do whatever the hell they want to do. For example, even though there were several problems with the Sendai nuclear power plant, it was allowed to go back online in August last year. The Nuclear Regulation Authority has completely transformed into the Nuclear Promotion Authority and is pushing the idea that nuclear is safe. They make it their business to play down and underestimate problems at Fukushima Daiichi, such as the contaminated water issue. What about the attitudes towards the evacuees? Their attitude is the same toward evacuees. At the time of the accident, the government sent an emergency radiation limit at 20 millisieverts per year. It was an unavoidable measure. Strangely, even after then-Prime Minister Noda announced cold shutdown in December 2011, the permissible exposure level was not changed back to one millisievert a year as it was before the accident. 
Even now, five years later, the limits are still at the temporary emergency level. I'll discuss this more later, but even after decontamination efforts, the radiation levels have not gone down sufficiently. Despite this, the government is trying to get people to return to their homes. Financial support for evacuees will be halted in March next year, 2017, and only those who return home will receive generous government benefits. Returnees will be rewarded, and those who refuse will get zilch. That is the government's repatriation policy. It has become clear that reconstruction policy does not align with actual rehabilitation of the affected population. The government is forcing the issue because Abe's stated goal of reconstruction is to be ready for the 2020 Olympics. Even though there are still many problems, the plan is to get people back into their homes as quickly as possible. Reconstruction is racing ahead in a bad way. The victims have been abandoned and the business of reconstruction marches on. In other words, money is used to try to stop leaking of radioactive water, decontamination, dealing with decontamination debris, building or rebuilding infrastructure, and other public works, but actual compensation for evacuees has been lacking. Not to be naive, but why is this happening? Why is this happening? This is because big corporations can profit from large construction projects. Japan has a history of this kind of wasteful spending. Bridges to nowhere, clear-cutting hillsides and then concreting them over to stop erosion, roads that no one uses, etc. And national and local governments benefit from these cozy relationships too. Comparatively, spending money on victims is unappealing. That's what we call honne in Japanese. It's the real truth behind the facade. Last summer, the reconstruction budget was raised, but victims are still left unsatisfied with the assistance they are supposedly receiving. This is because the huge amount of money the government has spent does very little to answer the real needs of the people it's supposed to help. At the Reconstruction Promotion Conference, chaired by none other than Shinzo Abe himself, 23 trillion yen, over 224 billion U.S. dollars, plus another 9 trillion yen for a grand total of 34 trillion yen, or almost 30 billion U.S. dollars, was pledged in an attempt to complete reconstruction within the next five years. This is an astronomical sum, and if you divide it out among the approximately 340,000 evacuees in the Tohoku region, which includes Fukushima, it comes to 94 million yen per person, or 3.76 billion yen for a family of four. That's a little under a million dollars per person. Even if you were to use half of that money for actual individual compensation, there would still be a huge amount left for infrastructure and public works and cleanup. Unfortunately, this is not how spending has worked, and projects up to this point have been a phenomenal waste of money. For example, 2.4 trillion yen has been spent on decontamination. Even with this huge amount, radiation levels have not dropped nearly as much as planned. 
Out of 275 people from Kalauchi Village, which was one of the first in the no-go zone to have evacuation orders lifted, only 10 or so people have returned. Over half of the people who have refused to return gave concern about radiation levels as their reason. The evacuation order was lifted for Nadaha Town in last September, but only about 6% of people have returned. A local government survey of the evacuees revealed that even if all services were restored, that 25% had no intention of ever returning and another 20% or so, it was still up in the air for them. A local NHK news program featured a bus tour for people considering returning to Naraha. The tour took in the water purification facilities and the schools slated to reopen in spring next year, among other things. One family with a little girl was convinced by the tour, but another gentleman said that although it looked tempting, his family was well situated in their new life and he did not want to uproot them again. I can tell you, as someone with a child who was still in elementary school at the time of the accident and who is now in high school, five years is an eternity for a child. Why aren't the attempts at decontamination working? Well, there's been a lot of press about slipshod work and a multitude of other problems with the companies involved in decontamination, but that isn't the real problem. Even if decontamination is carried out carefully, it is not unusual for radiation levels to rise again over time. Fukushima is over 70% forested, and it is not possible to decontaminate the forests. On a personal note, when I visited Fukushima City last summer, the closer we got to the forested areas and places with thick vegetation, the more noise our Geiger counters made. There are also many rivers and streams, and there's no plan whatsoever to decontaminate these. Even so, salmon hatchlings have been released for the first time in five years into a river in Naraha. So when it rains and when the wind blows, radioactive particles from the mountains and streams come to settle again in the valleys and along the coastline, recontaminating the areas that have been cleaned. After serious weather like typhoons, which Japan has a lot of, a rise in radiation levels is always reported. The nuclear accident has changed Fukushima's blessing of a stunning natural environment into its curse. Even with this inherent failure, decontamination continues. Huge sums of money disappear while radiation stubbornly refuses to go away. And there's another problem that goes hand-in-hand hand with decontamination, and that is the creation of large amounts of radioactive debris. Endless piles of contaminated rubble, dirt, and green waste are produced daily. Plastic bags filled with this debris created mountain ranges unto themselves, and there is nowhere to warehouse them. Some have been trucked to large-scale interim storage, in 1,073 rapidly degrading piles in both evacuated and non-evacuated areas. Athletic fields, parks, and other public open spaces have been commandeered for large-scale storage in populated areas. 
Other toxic bags of debris remain in 115,068 different places around the populated area of Fukushima, in people's gardens, buried under school playgrounds, sitting on the playground, on farms or temple grounds, and so on. When I was in Fukushima City, the all-but-abandoned giant Shinobuyama Park, I noticed what appeared to be brand-new roads to nowhere until I saw how they had clear-cut and terraced the hillside and were starting to line up bags there. Also, looking closely out across the landscape of Fukushima City from the observation platform, one can see various roads carved into the hillsides leading to clear-cut patches, presumably to receive waste. The government is hastily moving to make the bags disappear before 2020, but there is nowhere for final disposal of contaminated materials. So, the government has come up with the bright idea of reducing waste through incineration and other processes and magically reduce it further through recycling. So that way, they reason, they can dramatically cut down on the space required to store the detritus of decontamination. The plan is to send material that is over 100,000 becquerels per kilogram first to interim storage and then proceed with recycling. Remaining materials that are too contaminated to recycle or what is reduced or somehow separated out will be buried in final storage in underground concrete bunkers. It's important to note that in the 2012 Special Measures Law for Treating Radioactive Contaminated Materials, which is my translation, there was no mention of recycling. But suddenly the idea of recycling has been gaining ground. This is such a ridiculous and dangerous idea because it makes the radiation invisible and yet it could be anywhere. Can you give us some examples of recycling methods that are in the works? In 2019, the government plans to open a power plant fueled by chips made from Fukushima trees. This is planned for the industrial zone of Okoshi Town in Tamura City in Fukushima. Energy made from the trees of Fukushima's forests will help with the illusion of decontamination and be a big moneymaker. Also, in Itate Village, an incinerator to prepare contaminated soil for the recycling stream is now doing test runs. The soil is incinerated at 1,300 degrees centigrade, and the cesium will ostensibly be trapped by a filter. Actually, it's not all trapped. Then, the supposedly decontaminated soil, which is 120th of its original volume, will be further recycled into construction products. That bears a strong resemblance to the story we carried last year about eco-cement, which is made from the ash of the incineration process. That's another example. So, while... This sounds like a reasonable solution to a stream of waste. It doesn't sound that reasonable when you actually look at it, does it? No, not really, especially once you look at the honne or the real truth behind what is going on. 
And what is happening is that long-standing radiation safety parameters are being quietly loosened to make room for recycling more material. For example, let's take soil. Before the Fukushima Daiichi accident, the recycling clearance level for radiation was 100 becquerels per kilogram. But now, suddenly, it's 8,000 becquerels per kilogram. Sounds a lot like the new normal of 20 millisieverts per year for radioactive exposure, doesn't it? Road construction is one area that will see more and more contaminated soil or fill products that are mixed with contaminated ash. So that would be like the eco-cement, something that's mixed uh, and diluted, but it still has the radioactivity in it. It'll be up to a limit of 8,000 becquerels per kilogram. And here are some numbers to help your listeners understand just what that might mean in terms of exposure. If the radiation level for fill products is kept lower than 4,300 becquerels per kilogram per year, it is expected that row construction workers would be exposed to an additional 1 millisievert per year. Remember that pre-accident levels were 1 millisievert per year. That means that road workers, not even road workers in Fukushima, this is all over Japan, road workers could potentially be doubling their exposure just by working with these products. That's, of course, a terrifying statistic. How about people living near roads built on contaminated fill? Well, they've estimated if there is a 30-centimeter barrier between soil contaminated up to 3,000 becquerels per kilogram, people living nearby would be exposed to an additional 10 microsieverts per year, which arguably isn't very much. If there's a 40-centimeter barrier, it's estimated that the contamination level can be as high as 10,000 becquerels per kilogram in the initial product. In June 2011, the Nuclear Regulation Authority decided that the clearance level for recycling would have to limit annual exposure to 10 microsieverts. That's still insane to increase people's exposure when it doesn't need to happen. And this would be off-site from Fukushima, so it could be anywhere in the country. Exactly. And really what I would be most concerned about is the people along the line working with the product and knowing exactly what a lot of these construction companies with so many subcontractors working down the line and the horrible stories that you hear of the way the laborers are treated. I just wonder if they're going to be able to do the right kind of safety and quality control. What other examples do you have to share with us? In Namie, a town very close to Fukushima Daiichi, actually where the fire occurred yesterday, they are also planning to recycle radioactively contaminated metal waste. There were many cars and vending machines. Japan is the land of vending machines. And there will also be more and more homes that are torn down to make way for new construction in the evacuation zones. Cesium clings to rust, making anything with a radiator or a metal filter or a fan system very difficult to decontaminate. There's a process still in the experimental stages to clean these items and a large facility to deal with them 
will soon be on the agenda. I wonder where the water used to scrub the cesium will end up. Interestingly, we heard about this on the local Fukushima NHK news program called Hamanaka Aizu Online. It was in the latter half of a 12-minute segment on recycling. I took a few notes and went back the next day to look at the segment again, specifically to view the part about metal recycling because it was rather shocking and new to me and because the waste specialist interviewed said something about metal waste up to this point being taken away willy-nilly by recycling companies at their own discretion that the radiation levels were below suggested levels. It had been edited out of the program. Someone must have complained that it was a little bit too much information for the sensitive ears of the public. In fact, though, quite a bit of radioactive material has been moved around before the government has had anything to do with it, especially in the inhabited areas. For example, waste from homes that were decontaminated before government programs started is unaccounted for. A friend of mine was ahead of the game in getting his home cleaned up, and he has no idea where the company he used took the waste. All of these recycling methods will give birth to new pollution pathways, whether it be through radioactive smoke or cesium-tainted water, through transport or contact with contaminated end products during construction. In the end, the poisons from Fukushima Daiichi Genpatsu will never disappear. They will only change form and be spread across Japan. It will be important that proper safety regulations and inspections are in place before such materials are used. I don't feel very optimistic that this will be the case, given the haphazard way of decontamination so far. There are too many subcontractors and no accountability. But that's a topic for a future episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Beverly Findlay Kaneko. Beverly spoke of the incineration problem with the Fukushima radioactive waste. And that brings me to our next interviewee. Kimberly Roberson is the founder of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, or FAN. She is a former Greenpeace nuclear campaigner, author of Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response, and as a certified nutrition educator, is the co-founder of Radiation Awareness Protection Talk. More than four years ago, she and Fan became involved in bringing awareness of the problems of incineration of Fukushima's radioactive waste to the government of Fukushima. Kimberly, give us a sense of the background as to why you and others felt that a petition was needed and how it was put together. Well, this was back four years ago, just around this time in 2012, when we were made aware here in the U.S. of the incineration campaign that was taken on by the Japanese government around the Fukushima disaster in Japan. And there was a rumor that the Japanese government was looking at this in terms of sharing the pain, share the pain, that by moving the radioactive soil and rubble and tsunami garbage around the country and burning it at different locations, it would share the fallout, in a sense, with the people of Japan, you know, not even really thinking, I guess, about how it was impacting the rest of the world. 
via the jet stream and the northern hemisphere. So when we got wind of that, I believe it was Molly Lightfoot and a few other activists put together a petition and we collected signatures all over the world. What was asked in this petition and who was it directed to? Bianca Jagger led a campaign to halt the incineration of untold amounts of radioactive rubble and toxic rubble in Japan following the tsunami and nuclear meltdowns. And it was addressed to the government of Japan. Mayito Khan at the time was prime minister. Where was the petition put up and what kind of response did you have to it? I believe it started on Dr. Helen Caldicott's website. I know that Molly Lightfoot was very active in getting this petition going. There, uh, a woman named Tamoy Zemer, who had evacuated Japan and was living in New York and still had family in Japan, was instrumental in getting the online petition going. What happened to that petition and who was it given to? The petition was printed out and delivered to a number of Japanese embassies and consulates around the world. San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C., Berlin, Osaka, and a number of other cities. What, if any, response did you get back from either the consulates or the Japanese government? Well, it depends, and you'd have to talk to some other people that were involved. But in my case, in San Francisco, we asked for a meeting in person with the Japanese consul, Mr. Iwata, and we were granted that meeting. So a number of us, I think there were about a dozen of us, went upstairs at the Japanese consulate in San Francisco, sat down across the table from him and some of his colleagues, and had a very heartfelt, emotional meeting. Others such as Heidi Huttner and Priscilla Starr and a group in New York, had a rally on the front steps of the consulate there. Bianca Jagger had a different experience in London. I know in Washington, D.C., Diane DiRico of Nuclear Information Resource Service and Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear delivered to the embassy there. The door basically opened long enough to take their petition and slam it shut. So it was a different experience around the world. What happened in San Francisco is we were promised that our petition would be delivered to Tokyo, to the Japanese government there. And, in fact, we never received any confirmation whatsoever. Any of the people delivering in any of these cities was receipt verified by the Japanese government. Given that TEPCO has now started up incinerating 14,000 tons of radioactive waste from Fukushima and the decontamination process, what are your concerns? I also believe it's not just decontamination waste. They may be beginning with that, but TEPCO, we have no idea what kind of scrubbers are being used. They said that they would use special scrubbers to capture the radionuclides, but we don't know if that's true, like a lot of other things TEPCO has said. And we don't know where the ash will be stored, if it will, in fact, be stored safely, like they've claimed. They're actually saying that the waste is going to be incorporated in construction projects because they consider the waste safe, but there's no guarantee and there's no testing that we know of that's going to be done to find out the radiation levels. Really, there's no oversight going on to this. And Greenpeace recently announced um, a research project in Japan, and I thought it was very interesting that this happened. You know, we have the TEPCO and former executives being indicted now, 
at the same time, I think a day later, TEPCO announces this incineration campaign, which even for those of us who understand, you know, Japan is a municipal incineration country. They've been doing it for years. Every country around the world that has radioactive waste, for the most part, incinerates it, which is dreadful. But when you look at the sheer enormity of what's on site, and so we have the TEPCO execs being indicted. A day later, we find out TEPCO is starting to incinerate. And we also find out, you know, Greenpeace has the former Prime Minister, Khan, on the Rainbow Warrior, touring the area, just as the incineration is starting. So it's all very, very troubling that here, you know, four years later, you know, the petition ignored, disrespected by the fact that TEPCO is starting to incinerate everything just about on that site. If we already know that a petition campaign is not going to have the necessary effect, what would you suggest be done to bring up and bring to the fore the issue of incineration and the additional danger that it poses, not only to the people of Japan, but to the Pacific Ocean and to anyone who happens to be downwind of the particulate matter from the burning process? I will say there's no easy answer to this, but back in 2012, when my group, Kashima Fallout Awareness Network, several of our members, and Ecological Options Network, and others went to the Japanese consulate. It was videotaped by E.ON, by Jim Heddle and Mary Beth Rangan, and they posted it, and then had to go out of the country for about a week. They didn't have time to edit it. Someone in Japan found the video, and it went viral, unedited. They went ahead and translated it. It's quite long, but it really captures the spirit of what we did that day, and it was so well-received by the people of Japan, who at the same time in their country were sitting down trying to block trucks from delivering um, waste to these incinerator sites. It was happening all over the country. People were getting arrested. There was a huge groundswell of opposition. And now it almost seems to have been forgotten here in the United States. So Having me on today to tell the story to you is one piece of that. I understand that you'll be putting our video up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. If people can share that video in solidarity with the people of Japan, that would be a very good start. I would ask that since Greenpeace has people in Japan near Fukushima right now doing sampling and leading a research mission, that they ask the Japanese government about our petition, what happened to it, and would anyone be allowed to be on site? a team of people to make sure that these incinerators are running as safely as possible, that the proper scrubbers are being used and the ash is being stored safely, as TEPCO says they will do. And we all know how well we can trust TEPCO. They can't be trusted. I mean, this is happening literally the same day that their former employees are being indicted on negligence. There's been no trust whatsoever. So there's no reason we should begin to trust them right now. We need other people there observing that. It's great to have the research. I'm not saying anything negative about that. We've needed it for a long time and also research on human health impacts. But there's nothing being done right now to oversee the project that TEPCO's embarking on, which is huge. I mean, if anybody has seen the footage from drones flying over that site, it's just as far as the eye can see, bags of radioactive debris, soil, and anything you can imagine that they're going to burn in those incinerators. And it's going to come down in rainfall in the Pacific Ocean and on land in the Northern Hemisphere and possibly even the Southern Hemisphere. So this is a whole new humanitarian environmental crisis that's 
beginning yet again. It's just a disaster. It's five years and it's still going on. That was Kimberly Roberson of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. We'll have that video she mentioned from the 2012 delivery of the petition to the Japanese Embassy in San Francisco up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 246. Here's today's final thought. Fukushima. Five years in, there's so much to say. But really, what can a person say? When I cannot cloak myself in anger or sarcasm, the emotion of this issue is overwhelming, and words fail me. In the early days, when the horror that is the triple nuclear meltdown was just starting to make itself known, I found myself thinking that this was like a science fiction story, that in some dystopian future, people would look back on where we were, where we are right now, and refer to it as that time when everything had changed, but the people were too ignorant, arrogant, or manipulated to understand. So they behaved as if everything was the same, when in fact, nothing was the same, and never would be again. A line had been drawn in the sands of time, marking before, and what we have to deal with now and forever forward. I see catastrophic mistakes being made by the sociopathic greedmongers of the nuclear industry, the politicians of Japan, and international business interests, all of them trying to pretend that Fukushima is fine, nothing to worry about, go back to making plans to come to the 2020 Tokyo No Olympics, and pay no attention to that glowing little man behind the curtain. I try to make this insanity understandable, sometimes even worthy of a laugh of acknowledgement at how numbnuts it all is. Sometimes I get it better than others. Sometimes I wonder if it is doing anything at all, except keeping me really, really busy every Tuesday producing this show. Still, I can't not do it. I can't not take action. And at least I'm not alone. A great big activist shout-out to all of you who choose to look nuclear straight in the eye and take action against it. All of you are my heroes and my sheroes. To stand against the tide of popular, comfortable ignorance and be willing to contradict what passes for common knowledge about nuclear, to stand for and with the people of Japan, the children, the babies, the DNA, that makes you a really fine person in my book. The irony is that five years ago, I knew none of you, and none of you knew me. Despite my having been at Three Mile Island, I was not an activist on nuclear issues until Fukushima mule kicked me out of my ignorance and into action. Now, I know you as my people, my tribe. You are the people who bother to care. You are willing to step out from inside the looking glass and see the truth and live in the truth and stay here. It isn't pretty, 
And believe me, I know it isn't easy. But you do it. We do it. And we continue to work together to bring some sanity to the most grossly insane technology the world has known. Considering the magnitude of errors made from the dawn of the atomic age until today, it is entirely possible that we, meaning the human race a couple of generations down, may be on our way out, not with a bang, but with a radiological whisper. However, until that day comes, I know this is the battle of my life, for life itself, in all of its intricate, magnificent splendor. Hey, a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do. I'm in. For the duration. Thanks for being in with me. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 8, 2016. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, greenpeace.org, stanford.edu, thediplomat.com, manichi.jp, NHK, Fukushima Diary, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, AP, Radiation and Public Health Project at radiation.org, Asahi Shimbun, nuclear-news.net, theecologist.org, and formable.com, and Lucas Hickson, stlpublicradio.org, spoonsenergymatters.wordpress.com, foxcarolina.com, beyondnuclear.org, miamiherald.com, nypost.com, tri-cityherald.com, cela.ca, Yahoo News, miningawareness.wordpress.com, japantimes.co, mirror.co.uk, thelocal.ch, Sierra, S-E-M-G dot WordPress dot com, A-P-I-J-F-O-R-G, the tone-deaf, empathy-lacking lackeys who write for World Nuclear News, and the gold standard of activists who gather on the Nuclear Hot Seat site on Facebook, which you are all invited to visit and like. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompanied by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV, on StuWebRadioNetwork.com, in New Zealand by NewZSentinel.com, and on ActivateMedia.org. We're always looking for other networks to connect with. So if you know a news aggregator or a community radio station that would like to carry the show, do put us in touch. And be sure to check out our archive of over 245 shows on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. You can also find many of them on our YouTube channel under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos and on iTunes under Podcasts. And please remember that your contributions help keep Nuclear Hot Seat the vital force it is for honest, accurate nuclear news. So please do what you can this week to help us out with a donation at NuclearHotSeat.com. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2016, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep 
because we are all and forever will be in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.